Good morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are in the world. This is the second event in a series produced by Open Society Foundation's Europe and Eurasia program. This series is about how the EU can responsibly implement energy sanctions on Russia. And if you missed the first event, you can find it on the YouTube channel of Open Society. A link will be posted to the chat. My name's James Cantor. I'm the host of the EU Scream podcast, and I'm the moderator for this series. Today's event is focused on how the EU can push forward with a green energy agenda while overcoming the challenges of decoupling from Russian energy sources. How, for example, does Europe plug the immediate energy gap while maintaining its commitment to net zero emissions? I will pose a first round of questions to each of our panelists by way of introduction. We'll get responses of just a minute or so each, and then we'll get into a more detailed discussion. For those online, welcome. Please put your questions in the chat. For those in the room, please scan the QR code. We'll try and leave enough time at the end for a little bit of Q&A. And please do stay with us to hear from Matthew Baldwin. Uh, Matthew will be familiar to many of you. He's the Deputy Director for DG Energy at the European Commission, and he should be with us in about three quarters of an hour. With us in the studio is Heather Gravy. Uh, Heather, you're the Brussels-based Special Advisor on Climate to the Open Society Foundation's president. Uh, also with us in the studio, Jesse Scott. Jesse, you're the director of the International Department at Agora Energiewende. It's a Berlin-based think tank working towards the goal of climate neutrality. And joining us remotely is Kirsten Westphal. Uh, Kirsten, you're the executive director of analysis and research at the Hamburg-based H2 Global Stiftung. That's a foundation focused on climate neutral energy. Now, uh, for our introductory round, can I turn to you, Heather? Uh, what kind of time horizon, uh, how many years, say, do you think it should take the EU to shift to green and renewable sources in order to make up for the shortfall of decoupling from dirty Russian sources? Just a minute or so by way of introduction. Sure, thanks, James. It's really something you have to think about in several stages, maybe several acts of a play. So act one um, is going to be this winter, when European governments will be seeking to replace the Russian gas and as much oil as possible um, absolutely any way they can. So that's going to mean some pretty dirty sources of energy, burning more coal, buying, of course, liquefied natural, natural gas, LNG, on international markets, pretty well buying up everything they can. And they, their aim is essentially to get through the winter without having to switch off the gas and without having to ration um, in any country, which is going to be very tricky, um, but also to protect against the ever-looming threat of Putin cutting off the gas himself, the piped gas at any rate. Um, they've now made commitments to getting out of Russian gas and oil, um, they and, and coal indeed. Um, and in this first big sprint, it will just be about getting through this winter, which raises all kinds of questions about how they will replace that 150 billion cubic meters of, of Russian gas. But then um, the, the big question to answer what you asked about the timeline is how long phase two and phase three will take. So phase two is building out the alternative sources of energy to supply uh, energy in winters to come. So building the renewables, especially off onshore wind, but also, uh, of course, these floating LNG terminals. They can come in quite fast, but also more fixed LNG terminals and essentially ramping up up the deployment of other alternative sources of energy. And then and during that period, international markets could see a lot of price volatility and very high prices as Europe buys up everything that's available on the market, which will put a big squeeze on poorer countries. And then phase three, things stabilize, um, there are more sources, energy markets become more flexible again. Um, and at that point, prices should then stabilize and become more responsive to demand because supply uh, is, is more, more certain. And what sort of period, uh, just so I can get your top line thought on that, what sort of period 
is the phasing going to take? This is where um, I think Jesse and Kirsten need to tell us how long they might take. The, the, there are the optimists who think that um, you know, phase two could be next winter, winter of 23-24. There are pessimists who are saying, no way, that's 2026 that we're, we're really getting through that phase. And it won't stabilize until 2026-27. That's a long time, not only for Europeans to live with very high energy prices, but of course also the rest of the world where people can even less afford it. Okay, great. Now, Jesse, um, can I sort of put the same question to you? How soon can Europe go a lot greener while decoupling from Russia? Um, I'll give you a couple of minutes. Okay, and you are interested in this time frame question. Heather's absolutely right. We're looking at phases, and there are going to be some tough moments. Let's keep our eye on the real gain here, which is structural change that actually gets us off that Russian 150 BCM of gas and keeps us on track for net zero, which means phasing down of gas in the 2030s timeframe. That means energy efficiency first. It always does, but it's important and we need to keep saying it. Then we need to build up our renewable capacity in Europe. Now, we are probably in a position to get on track for our 2030 targets with solar PV. We're a long way off track today with wind. We need something like 33 gigawatts additional per annum, and we're, in, we're struggling to make 10 at the moment. We're also going to need to electrify energy loads. That in particular means addressing industry and, of course, residential heat in buildings, which is one of the things we're really worried about this winter. And that's a question of supply chains and skill sets and finance models. And frankly, we've been talking about that since the oil crisis in the 70s, half a century ago. So I'd like to be an optimist. And then, of course, we also need to think about replacing the molecules where we need molecular energy with clean hydrogen. And there, the 20 million metric tons target that's mentioned in the EU's repower proposal. Again, we've got a ways to go. So if I, can, if, if I can push you on a sort of timeline, Heather was talking about phases up until 20, uh, 2027, perhaps even beyond that. Are, are you, where, where, where do you stand on, on the timeline? We'd all like to be able to make a very firm bet on this. What I will say is that additional global LNG capacity is not going to be coming online before the late 2020s. Investment decisions that have been taken today are going to produce capacity 2026 plus. A new investment decision, for example, in liquefaction facilities in the US, 2029. We can, if we have the will to do it and we address the regulatory barriers, move much, much faster on the renewables and the energy efficiency. Right. I'd like to say two to three years to right. really change some of the volumes that we need to. Okay, thank you for that. Kirsten, um, can I turn to you? I hope you can hear me okay. What do you make of the viability and feasibility of some of Heather's and Jesse's uh, predictions about how the phases kind of unfold? Your introductory remarks, please. Thank you very much. And I can only echo what, what Heather and Jesse have said. It's, it's really an issue of faces and it's an issue of, of both incremental structural and systemic change because it, it's not just um, a challenge for the energy transformation, but it's also a challenge for the industry. So we are really looking into, a, I would say, an industrial revolution. And if you ask me, and I mean, Jesse has, has, has rightly pointed out that additional LNGs are yet to come from 2026 onwards. So the first phase for me is really um, the phase till, well, 2023, 2024, hopefully with some light at the tunnel around 2025, 26. And then we have the next phase coming till, I would say, 20. 35. And the measures that have been mentioned are absolutely right. We all know that, especially when we talk about the systemic challenge that is ahead of us, energy efficiency first, then electrification, and then the molecule question, which is, is, is deeply um, related with industrial revolution that I mentioned. But asking how quickly, how rapidly that could go, I, I would turn the focus to the fact that we 
we are actually in a threefold crisis, as we know. We we find we are in a climate crisis. We have seen the Corona crisis that has really um, caused a, I would say, a price and investment crisis that already loomed in the energy sector, and that's part of uh, adding to the very difficult situation that we are in. And of course, the second. Um, the third crisis that that not only a crisis but the Russian invasion in, into Ukraine has has really caused that sense of urgency. But to act um, with regard to that sense of urgency, there would we we, we 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 have to see that we are really in a difficult situation. As I try to say, we are coming out of a price crisis, investment crisis in the energy sector. We've now seen really an energy crisis, and we might see really a supply and supplier crisis because we're talking companies running bankrupt we are looking in a really difficult social economic situation so um my precondition can i can i i'll 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 I'll, um (laughs) we'll definitely be coming back to you shortly but that's 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 a very good overview and i want to thank you all for your sort of rapid fire start questions and heather I wonder if I can turn to you just to give us a bit more detail about the stages involved in this transition and the trade-offs that are involved. And let me say here that the phase that we're currently in, um, you know, the Kremlin seems to be earning more than ever from energy exports, and those revenues go to Putin's war machine. And he's fighting a long war. He's playing a long game. And it, it it's quite... Um, tempting to be a little bit pessimistic uh, given the phase that we're currently in. So, Yeah, sanctions are a very tricky uh, policy instrument, policy response. I myself think that Europe had no choice but to go for sanctions quickly, as hard as they could, as big as they could, for several reasons. One is simply to try to stop the war. And as you point out, um, they have the price of the, the, the effect of driving up prices in the short term. So Putin is still, some estimates say, getting about $2 billion a day into his coffers from selling oil and gas, not only to Europe, but, but globally. Now, that will start to come down um, because uh, there have been these other sanctions that the EU has agreed about insurance, about shipping. Um, so it becomes harder for um, the Russian oil to go around the globe to other markets, but it still will. They will find ways around it. Um, and the demand is clearly there because prices are so high. The, the light at the end of the tunnel of phase one. On yeah. oil, yes. Um, piped gas is, of course, the big one for Europe because of the huge dependence of Germany and Italy on, on large volumes of that, but also very large um, levels of dependence in the Czech Republic, Bulgaria. Um, Now, some countries have taken very uh, drastic and radical um, methods. Um, Lithuania, for example, has come off the Russian gas incredibly quickly. Um, Others, other countries are are prepared to do a lot. And I think this is the big political conundrum, how to maintain the unity about the sanctions, keep the sanctions in place while having enough solidarity between the member states to share the energy, if need be, this winter. Now, they've agreed to do that. They've all agreed that they're going to increase their gas storage. So the question is whether gas Gazprom will give them the gas to to increase the storage sufficiently. But then what happens this winter if there's really cold weather in some countries but not others? um, Can countries be sure of of what their neighbours will do? Um, This has never been tried before. We've never had energy solidarity in Europe and we're still lacking a lot of infrastructure to do it as well. You know, the LNG terminals are currently there in Spain, but Spain can't then send LNG to other countries because of the the infrastructure is, is there's not enough to do that. So the lack of an integrated European energy market and energy distribution is really coming to bite us now. It's something we should have invested in a really long time ago as Jesse was saying, you know, we had the warning from OPEC in the 1970s. The, Europe could have done that then. Now we're scrambling to do it in a big hurry. But in in my view, the key thing is getting across to the public, because the public is in many ways ahead of politicians on the Ukraine war. They've shown more solidarity as individuals with Ukrainians, with refugees, but also in what they're willing to do to stop this war than than politicians who haven't had that much courage, frankly. So I think if politicians were, if leaders were set sent very clear signals to the public that, look, we've all got to save as much energy as possible 
possible, you know, turn down the thermostats to take away Putin's money to show solidarity with Ukraine, um, try and find ways of, of saving energy households, but also businesses need to be doing this. There are energy savings to be made. And that is the kind of message that would keep Europe together better than, um, you know, a lot of um, bartering um, at, at the political level. And is part of that giving the European public a glimpse of the final phase? Yes, you're absolutely right. The vision thing is vital. The problem is, as we've just been discussing, trying to, to guess how long that might take. Um, but people are getting a very strong price signal at the moment. Um, and that will not just be this winter. That will be for at least several winters to come. So governments saying to them, OK, we will try and get heat pumps and solar out to everybody. Um, don't buy a gas boiler. Some countries are already starting to say they're going to ban gas boilers, here in Brussels, for example, um, uh, giving a point in time. But there needs to be a much clearer signal from governments. These are not just temporary patches. This is a whole-scale transition that is now inevitable. Let's invest in that. Okay. So, Jesse, Heather says there are risks now. Obviously, there are very, very, very significant costs. That's not a reason not to be pursuing this strategy, but can we look a bit more forensically, perhaps, at the effects that these sanctions are having? And, you know, perhaps you can fold into that uh, whether a better solution, you know, whether there was a better solution than the kind of uh, foreshadowed embargo that was announced by EU authorities. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about whether tariffs would have sent a better signal. Actually, to be honest, I've felt that the sanctions tariff debate is perhaps not the most important and interesting one. What instead I've been doing, and I'd like to pick up two points Heather's made, is look at prices and what the price signal is and is not doing, and the solidarity issues. On prices in the three main gas markets in Europe, we've seen about an 11% reduction in demand year on year, but you have to correct for weather. Because as we all now know, the big issue is how cold is it in the winter. And that's what we're afraid of, of course, this coming winter, the winter after, the winter after that. And with that correction, it's more like 6%. Now, we've had historically high gas prices since last summer. And we've seen a 6% impact from prices. That's not perhaps as radical as some of us might have hoped. Now, there are various ways in which the price effects have and haven't been passed on as yet. But that brings me to solidarity, because I think we face three issues. One is between different EU member states. What happens to spell it out if it's cold in country A in November, which, by the way, is not so many days from now, and we do not know if it's going to be very cold in country B in February. How do we share the drawdown on the storage, given that we know what we know about the potential LNG imports, but we are not confident about the pipeline supply flows. That needs some thinking through, and we need to hang together as Europeans, or there will be damage to the European project. Secondly, types of consumers. Which consumers are going to face, you know, the word we're all thinking about, rationing? Now, we know some of the solutions in the power sector. But a lot, of course, depends on what happens in the French nuclear fleet. We know some of the solutions in industry. And I think the German decision to propose a gas demand reduction auction is partly a discovery process about what industry thinks it can and can't do. And then we come, of course, to household heat. And there we face the issue of energy poverty, because some of us are going to worry more about our gas and electricity bills than others. And I have to say, I've spent a lot of time lately with Western European colleagues, Eastern European colleagues, and our Eastern European colleagues are much more anxious about this. And they think we're a little unrealistic and naive in the West. People are saying, look, the last time we faced this situation, families moved into one room of a house, and you put cardboard on the inside of the windows for insulation. We could be very, very cold, and the politics of that is going to be difficult. I mean, these are some of the challenges, if I may, in, in, in the immediate, uh, 
you know, in the immediate future, looking at the rest of this year, early into next, and certainly this winter. But I wonder if I could um, bring you back more to the sunny uplands uh, and, and, and the larger vision, which is, you know, how does the EU get to majority renewables without uh, locking in uh, sources like dirty carbon and uh, make, you know, and uh, LNG terminals galore rather than putting that money elsewhere. Uh, and the question really is, when we have that larger vision, are we looking at, are we looking at lock-in? And how, how serious is that prospect of these polluting sources? Or do you have faith that, you know, there could be a different, a different result at the end of the day? Well, first on the renewables, the energy saving those structural changes. Here I'm a little frustrated. We know the answers. We've known them for decades. We need to address onshore wind permitting. And by the way, there's a limit to what, of course, the European Commission, the European Union can do about that, because ultimately this is a matter of national and regional law. And we need our governments to pick up that challenge and go with it. And much the same applies to insulation in buildings, which is, of course, the biggest energy saving fundamental to the household heat. We know the answers, we need to be braver and do them. When it comes to new investments, there's no shortage of money, by the way, for onshore wind. The issue, the bottleneck, is what is there to invest in while there's this huge queue of pre-permitted projects. For new investments, we will see some LNG investments. We will see, I think, some additional pipeline infrastructure shortcut type investments. I think the market will do most of that. There might be some EU public money. I don't think that's really going to be a major game changer for most of those projects. Where it would make a difference is for some of the member states where the commercial case is weaker, but perhaps the case for political solidarity is stronger. I'm more concerned about the contracts that underlie this. Will there be new long-term gas contracts? Or to be honest, I was concerned about that two months ago because it's very clear in the discussions now that the global LNG producers are realizing that in Europe we are still holding on to our phase-down goal. I mean, this, this is very interesting because we, we, you've mentioned some very, very concrete elements of how we get to a cleaner future, long-term gas contracts, permitting for wind, uh, among others. And yet the headlines that we see uh, you know, tend to be about uh, the opening of new coal, well, the reopening of coal-fired power in, in in so many European countries, and so there's a kind of there's a kind of y y one sometimes feels that there's uh, not enough emphasis, perhaps, on these other very important stories. Um, Kirsten, can I turn to you? Um, can you give us more of a uh, geopolitical view, perhaps, on these issues? Can you read the tea leaves a bit for us uh, and? Uh, one question I would put to you, uh, I'd invite you to respond a little bit to what uh, Heather and Jesse have said, but can I also put the question to you, uh, how likely is a full shutoff of Russian gas this winter? Uh, we've already seen significant reductions in Russian gas deliveries in recent weeks. Hmm. Um, on your last point, I wouldn't exclude anything. In, in that spiral that we are in. If you ask me about the geopolitical um, tea leaves reading, uh, for me, it is really an issue of exactly European solidarity, exactly European integration. I think we have to make, um, and we knew that for, for some time, the energy transition really, as I, we have to make it a European project. And that means really a green electricity and molecules um, union, hydrogen union. I think that's that's the way forward. And if I say EU, then it's really an issue of also integrating the neighborhood, looking well to the North Sea, to the Baltic Sea, but also the Mediterranean and the Black Sea region. So it, this is part of what I would say the strategic element. We have to think through the new um, importing partnerships that we will see, and they will no longer be that kind of import relationships that simply substitute for oil and gas deliveries, but we are looking into really partnerships um, of sharing technologies, sharing values. Um, it's, it's much more the energy revolution, energy transformation will be much more technology driven. Like the value chains are much more complex 
and and it's and and the the, the big challenge. I mean, there very uh, there are lots of challenges ahead. But my, my major message would be also now working for H2 Global is we have to start really now implementing um, hydrogen value chains, derivative value chains, in order to test and and find the technologies. And that's the 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 the, the difficult and tricky issue right now, both managing the the emergency and the and the crisis, but also already moving ahead. So doing both in parallel, securing the supplies and avoiding um, lock-ins, as you said. And if we have to do lock-ins, maybe talk with our partner countries about a way of decarbonizing the value chain later. So it's really about long-term strategic partnerships. And I also think the idea is right to think about integrating these ideas into the global gateway strategy. Or if you see the G7 declaration, that's the the right point to think about global partnerships of, of infrastructure and investment, in particular in these new corridors. You know, Kirsten, I was very intrigued by one word that you used, which was values, uh, when you were talking about partnerships uh, with uh, perhaps new overseas uh, energy partners. And I I guess I would put the question this way, um, you know, how do we manage this transition either for new temporary fossil fuels or for the kinds of resources needed for green, clean, truly green, clean renewables without deepening our reliance on a new set of autocrats uh, around the world? Well, if we talk um, about importing green electricity, green electrons, um, green molecules, we don't have to look to autocrats. Um, it's much more, as we know, there is more ubiquity. Um, uh, renewable energy is available across the globe. Technology is also more an issue of transfer and know-how. Of course, I mean, what, what I wanted to say, responding to your first question, is we, we are looking. I mean, that's a tremendous challenge. It's a Herculean task. We are in a geoeconomic situation where we have all these supply chain issues. We We have to look into the raw materials and we also yeah have to think about relocating parts of the value chain um, and this is why i really think it's it's up to the european union now to work with the labor neighborhood and on on long-term sustainable partnerships that's the only way forward i can't see europe really um remaining as a, as a strong economic and political pole without arranging a, a very solid and sustainable partnership with, with, with the neighborhood. And this includes, of course, ways of also um, importing low-carbon molecules, low-carbon derivatives and hydro- hydrogen as part of, you know, the transition, as part of the decarbonization of value chains. Um, um, because, I mean... Jesse had, has pointed to that, that the numbers we're talking are gigantic with regard to what we need in order to supply the 10 million tons annually that we look into importing in the Repower EU. We're talking about 10 gigawatts of electrolyzers installed capacity. We're still in the megawatt range of uh, um, um, electrolyzers capacities, and that's okay. That's a that's, that's a that's more, a really yeah. that's a really good. Uh, point, I think, to turn back to Jesse, because what, what Kirsten's emphasizing there is the scale of the challenge, and she's emphasizing the need to find an, you know, a variety of ways to make Europe work better. So let's, let me put it this way. How would you assess the risk preparedness of the EU uh, in the event of a full shutoff of Russian gas this winter, and with the storage perhaps not uh, at the levels uh, that the the Commission would like? Well, we're in a better position than we would have been had we not done a lot of gas interconnection and electricity interconnection over the last 10 and 15 years in Europe. First thing, the Commission's actually got us prepared to some extent. We were not, of course, expecting the extreme situation with Russia. If the winter is mild, my understanding from the analysts is we'll muddle through. If the winter is very cold, we are going to take some very tough decisions. But you want a little bit of optimism, so let me pick up something that Kirsten said. Today there is not a global trade in renewable hydrogen. 
we need to create that value chain. We need to create the production, the delivery, the demand. But Kirsten and I and others have seen enormous numbers of leaders from the European neighborhood coming into Berlin in the last months. Everybody wants that conversation. The German government's doors are open. The Commission's doors are open. I actually am seeing conversations I've wanted to see happening on both electricity and green molecules for years suddenly speeding up. People are talking deals, they're talking bottlenecks, they're talking finance. So I think we will also see that we can secure ourselves within, as I estimated earlier, a matter of around three years for a fundamentally better situation and stop worrying quite so much about the thing we can't control, which is the winter weather. Great. Thank you very much. And Heather, can I come back to you now? The, a lot has been said, and I'm sure you'll want to come back on that. But one thing that I, I, I think we shouldn't lose sight of is, first and foremost, sort of energy efficiency. It's pretty vital. And it, it shouldn't just be an afterthought, particularly as we face you know, the possibility of a very cold winter and, and simply not enough supplies. Um, I mean, one way of putting the question is, you know, is it too late for a sort of wear a sweater for Ukraine campaign uh, by European officials that would actually resonate with the European public? So I've put this to, I've, I've heard a number of politicians talking about this issue and you get very different reactions. You know, uh, British conservatives, you can't tell the public to do anything. That would be terrible, even though, in fact, they do that all the time. That's what governments largely do. Others uh, are much more relaxed about it, particularly in countries which, where there's a high level of trust in the state. I can imagine a campaign like that working in Germany or the Netherlands, um, but it's, it's harder in other countries. And the key thing is people need to see some kind of benefit. Um, I really like the idea that the Centre for European Reform put forward of a negawatts campaign. Uh, that uh, you reward people for taking money, uh, not money, taking energy out of the demand. Uh, now, that works if you have solar panels with uh, feed-in tariffs where you can put electricity back into the grid. But unfortunately, there's actually not enough of that across Europe. Um, but uh, definitely, consumers now have a really strong price signal through their, their bill. As Jesse was pointing out, demand still hasn't dropped that much. But so a combination of price signal with um, a, a sense of your, there is a purpose to this. It's not just about pain, and there will be pain. I mean, uh, there are households that are really going to suffer across Europe because of this, both um, because of energy poverty, um, removing income, but also really being cold, and that will have big social health effects. So having a sense of where we're going is absolutely key, and also um, to give people a sense of, of solidarity across Europe. This is a moment when European integration needs to deliver some benefits by um, it not just being um, one summit, having emergency conclusions after the next, but the sense of a plan and real commitment to solidarity, um, that would shore up a lot of um, uh, the, the, the kind of sense of uncertainty that's there at the moment in a lot of governments about how they're actually going to manage this, and also prevent some of the emergency response which locks in um, dirty sources of fuel longer term. Yeah, it, it, you wanted to come in, Jesse, on the demand side, I think. Uh... Just to say that when it comes to citizens' response, we're all, of course, constrained by where we live. Some people live in buildings that really do need heat. Others live in buildings where actually we've put in relatively modern heating signals and there's a maximum on the thermostat, but there's also a minimum. You can't turn it down below 18 degrees. Well, that is limiting the range now of the response that we have. People would be willing to wear three sweaters, but if the building is still automatically heated to 18 degrees. So I think we're going to need an enormous public information cam, but we're also going to have to learn from the public a lot about the very, very complex historic set of building infrastructures that we have. That's good news because it's been a barrier to doing energy efficiency and building seriously for many, many years. Jesse's talking about a three-sweater winter. And I think the, um, and you know, cardboard insulation on the windows. I mean, people are really going to be going to whatever lengths they can. And where there's a shortage of skilled labor um, to uh, put in solar panels, um, and there's a shortage of heat pumps, there's a shortage of the solar panels themselves. So 
even when people can afford to make the transition, we now have real supply chain bottlenecks. But I just wanted to raise one other thing about energy poverty. Um, so at Open Society, we've been part of a project also with the King Bodoan Foundation and IKEA and others called um, uh, Energy for All in Europe, which looks at energy poverty. And um, there are very interesting focus groups um, in that, which, which talk to really vulnerable people who are facing serious energy poverty about what they're willing to do, what they can do. And it, there's across the board, there's very little climate denial in Europe. And people understand these are real issues. And there's actually a high level, even among people who are at a very low level of income, really very vulnerable. They want to do what they can to make the energy transition happen. And they, But the problem is they're often lacking the means to do it. For example, they're living in a building with poor insulation, but they don't own the building. They, even if they could afford it, they can't put in the insulation. That's up to the landlord. Or they have one energy bill for the whole building, which is the landlord simply divides among the tenants. So it doesn't matter how much energy they use. They'll face the same bill. So, And, and then there's the whole question of thermostats. So uh, the, the key thing is giving people the means, empowering them to take these decisions into their own hands. Um, and that's something that I think governments should really be focusing on now as well. What can they do to help people who own their own homes, but those are going to be the better off middle class people, but also to help those who don't own their own building and who are relying on often really very poor infrastructure. And the answer there is, I think, not to subsidize at the petrol pump or the gas bills, but to give really directed social security to those who need it on the basis of their, their income. Their okay, income. so a real opportunity there if governments get the messaging right and they tap into uh, real needs uh, that are rather granular, actually, to do with thermostats, to do with insulation and, and price signals. Um, Kirsten, can I come back to you? One thing that we had mentioned earlier uh, were uh, countries in the East and their vulnerability. And I'd, I'd like to turn also to, uh, you know, Ukraine and Moldova, for instance, because here we're talking about countries that uh, may join the EU at some point, and we would like them to join green. So again, another uh, geopolitical question to some degree, but what can we do to ensure that the EU helps the most exposed member states as well as candidate countries to, as I say, uh, join green if and when they join. And I also wanted to ask that question perhaps against the background of uh, you know, warnings that we hear from uh, Ukrainian officials, for instance, that by deterring fossil fuel projects, uh, the EU has given Putin more power. So these are very, very uh, emotive and political debates in some of our uh, current member states as well as our candidate countries. Hmm. Well, I would say first for the winter, really ensuring the solidarity issue with um, what has mentioned. I mean, that's part of also the German challenge to supply also, well, Eastern countries via German pipelines. So it's it's really an issue around corridors functioning. And as um, Jesse said, we we, we as, as the European Union has done a lot in improving interconnectivity here. So that's one point. The second point is really, I'm, I'm very happy to see that um, Ukraine is synchronized. The electricity grid is synchronized. We have started the first trading really with the Ukraine and that's, that's the way forward. And I would also see, and that's my third um, answer to your question, is we have to think through really pathways, um, decarbonizing existing value and energy chains, not, not simply looking into the green option, which of course should be part of the final setting, but indeed using what is there and step by step integrating and decarbonizing. Right. And so you see yeah. a, a great role for, 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 for Ukraine and, and opportunities because we have, uh, well, a huge pipeline infrastructure with Ukraine if we look to hydrogen. So if I've, if I've read you correctly there, there are definitely steps that the EU can take at this point to ensure that even these candidate countries can take the kinds of, you know, we don't want to, as we debate uh, prices for Europeans in the rest of the bloc, we should also be thinking about, uh, we should also be thinking about these countries that we're supporting to the east. And there are ways of bringing them into our, uh, bringing them into a greener future. 
Yeah, of course, we, 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 we have to think through joint projects. As I said, we have already the synchronization with Ukraine um, and trading with electricity ongoing. And of course, that should be expanded and there's a way forward. It's, it's now a very challenging situation, in particular, if we're looking to renewable energy projects, because the best sites are really in, in occupied territory. Um, but um, of course, this is the way forward to work together on the decarbonization issue of both electrons and molecules. I think there's a real opportunity also to think about leapfrogging um, in, in terms of um, stages of, of, of decarbonization. You know, the Russians have now destroyed uh, Ukraine's largest carbon emitter, which is the Mariupol steel, steelworks. So the obvious thing to do when we very much hope when this war is over is to build back greener in Ukraine um, and to help the EU, uh, for the EU to help Ukraine to leapfrog a stage of development and move directly into a decarbonized hydrogen and renewables driven economy. Hydrogen, of course, has to be manufactured with renewables energy to be, to be green. But in, don't build back steel and cement in these industries of the past but instead move straight into um, integrating Ukraine into the European Green Deal and the whole not only decarbonization drive but also sustainability biodiversity. Ukraine has fantastic biodiversity, um, lots of wetlands which are really valuable, also lots of small-scale agriculture, so not moving Ukraine into the CAP and a monoculture but preserving um, the, the real natural ecosystem benefits that Ukraine already has. This, these are the kinds of things we should be thinking about um, you know, we've had the candidate status has been granted both to Ukraine and Moldova. This is great. Now let's get these countries into the green future of Europe. Um, and, it, you know, we've had a lot of talk about build back better. Um, but there's a real opportunity to build back from a very, you know, a, a terrible uh, reconstruction, need for reconstruction um, after conflict, um, but really to build back greener on a very large scale. And that then gives hope and some vision to the rest of Europe about how it can be done. At the moment, we don't have any living, breathing example of a low-carbon, climate-neutral economy that we can point to to people to say, this is your future. This is what it could be like to live in a post-climate transition economy. But actually, there's a chance now to create one um, and to help these countries to move towards one actually a good deal faster even than the, the more advanced industrialized economies. Jesse, um, th that's a, an extraordinary vision. It's, it sounds like the sort of thing our politicians should be uh, talking about more frequently. Is, 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 that, is that viable? Is that, is that feasible, do you think? Some of, the, some of the, the vision that, I mean, Kirsten laid out some of the stages and then Heather kind of gave us a vision of, of, of a future post-transition economy. Absolutely feasible. It's also absolutely necessary. We have climate targets because you cannot change Earth system physics, and we are not on a good track at the moment. It's also a signal that's been picked up around the world. So actually one of the effects of the high oil and gas prices is a number of countries which had still been at the stage of the decarbonization debate at which you talk about a coal to gas bridge to renewables, are thinking about the coal to renewables switch directly, the leapfrog, because they've realized that dependency on global markets, particularly if you have a vulnerable currency, dependency upon neighbors with geopolitical ambitions is not a particularly brilliant strategy. Renewables are local. So we're seeing crisis, not just in Europe, we're seeing a crisis in Pakistan. Why? Because we've priced them out of the LNG market as Europeans. But we're seeing also, therefore, in countries like Pakistan, an increasing interest in, okay, we'd like to do the renewables. That brings me to a plea to the Europeans, which is let's not price those developing economies with huge potential emissions risk and huge potential to go for clean energy and all the development associated with it. Let's not price them out of the renewables market as well. Let's ensure that the supply chains are scaled and that we help with the costs. Great, thank you. Now we're still waiting for um, we're still waiting for Matthew to log on, so I'm going to turn initially to a few questions, and there's one from uh, there's one from uh, Mark Johnson, which uh, I think <laughs> gets to the gets gets to one idea about what sort of signals could be sent and how quickly. He asks, please, would a bad winter 
Would a bad first winter be the best way to dispel our complacency and catch up on the changes needed? Um, I will look around. The crisis. One can speculate. I'm also quite worried that we will need to manage public perception of the causes of that crisis. And I was listening to Polish colleagues over the last two days, and they are quite concerned that there are populist tendencies in Europe which will try to link the energy crisis and, by the way, the wider inflation in the economy to the green transition. So this is going to need some thinking through, and it needs some leadership. And it needs some leadership from Brussels, from European leaders towards one another, and it's going to be an anxious time. So I, <laughs> be careful what you wish for. And the, the political backlash from a, a first bad winter, among other things, could be, could be very nasty. Is, is that, yeah? Yes, and it, I mean, this is really the first big green crisis that we're facing, where uh, instead of simply looking at the warnings from the scientists and the UN and IPCC and so on and saying, oh, we're going to have to do this climate transition, let's think about how what we might do, suddenly there's a massive crisis and we have to take action very quickly. And usually that's not such good action. It's unplanned, you waste a lot of money and time and effort and resources um, just dealing with a crisis situation when if you'd planned it several years before, it could have been le much less bumpy. So I, we've got enough crisis right now. If this is a bad winter, the danger is that pushes actually the wrong incentives, perverse incentives. Uh, one thing is uh, countries leaping into, I'm thinking about the rest of the world too, um, into new kinds of nuclear that, for example, the Chinese are trying to sell into burning more coal, which is definitely happening in a number of countries because the LNG, they're priced out of LNG and, as Jesse was saying, risk of, instead of moving into renewables, they can't get the solar panels and the, the, the wind turbines that they need to do it too. So we, we need to have enough time to bring on stream the kind of renewables technology so that everybody can make that transition. And at the political level, there is a huge danger that there's already a lot of that the, the disinformation that's already out there, uh, which is blaming um, the, the high prices on the climate transition rather than on Putin, which is what it should be blamed on, um, that this is just going to undermine support. Um, there's already a lot of um, conspiracy theory and disinformation about these things. You also see some extraordinary claims, which are really untrue, that, for example, electric vehicles have a worse environmental impact over their lifespan than fossil fuel ones because of the batteries and so on. This is not true. Um, they're, they're massively more efficient. They have a, they're over over time. They are much better. But there's there's that kind of um, disinformation from different sources, which is really unhelpful at a moment when the political leadership needs to be for all of us to enter this transition and to try and make it go as smoothly as possible and set the right incentives for investment in what will provide freedom fuels and decentralized local energy production, um, not only in Europe but also globally. Very interesting. You should mention transport because we had an, an, another question from Craig Winokur. Uh, he, he, he asks, uh, when it comes to transport, uh, the EU is betting heavily on electrification. Uh, he asks, how long will it take for European electricity generation to be renewable and for that infrastructure to catch up that is needed? Um, Kirsten, can I? I'm sorry I didn't bring you into uh, the last round. Did you want to chime in there before I turn to Matthew? Um, not necessarily on the transport issue. I think we should also divide a personal. Um, um, car fleets and, and talk differently about maritime shipping, for example, and aviation, where we need other solutions. Um, that, that would be the, the point that I would like to make here. Okay, so that's not to take too much time. We mustn't forget about 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 those forms of transport too. Did anyone want to jump in quickly on transport before an sure. election? Yes, Jesse. Don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. It's not going to be fully renewable electricity before we have any electric cars. We just don't have the time frame to wait that long. Let's get on with it. Okay, great. Now we do have Matthew with us. Hello, Matthew. Uh, I introduced you. Uh, earlier on, but let me just repeat that you're the Deputy Director General at DG Energy for the European Commission. And, and Matthew, we're delighted to have you with us. We've been discussing how Europe plugs the immediate energy gap uh, amid the loss of Russian sources 
while trying to maintain its commitment to net zero emissions. Maybe you can lay out a little bit your, your, what, what the vision is from DG Energy when it comes to squaring this circle. Uh, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, fascinating to listen to my former life just being discussed, uh, transport there, and I fully agree with what was said. Indeed, you know, we can do much more on transport energy efficiency. I mean, uh, through speed limits, through reduced uses of cars and so on. We've talked many times about these issues. But from the broader uh, DGN perspective, um, it's an interesting question. I mean, in, in our view, not only is there no dichotomy between plugging the gap and keeping our commitments to net zero to the European Green Deal. So in fact, we want to step up the price of the uh, transition to the Green Deal. It'll be essential in the short to medium term if we're to keep uh, Europe powered up. And stepping back from the question, I mean, if you like, there are three separate challenges we face right now uh, in energy. It's an interesting time. We have, of course, issues around prices, and we must remember that prices have been high for some time uh, from the last autumn onwards. Um, we have a related uh, issues around security of supply. And of course, we still have the existential challenge of climate change. So the whole thrust of Repower EU is to tackle this triangle of issues together. We have to diversify out of Russian gas. The world has changed since the 24th of February, and it's not going to be the same again. And that diversification is essential and it's urgent. We need to improve our resilience and our preparedness. And at the same time, we need to uh, accelerate our green transition. So this is why I think in the same breath, it's essential we focus on all the different prongs of the triangle of, of Repower EU. Just for example, we want to increase the target of renewable energy from 40% to 45% by 2030. Uh, we want to increase the target for energy savings. Um, uh, we can, by these methods, for example, reduce our consumption of gas and oil by, by up to 5%, really quite quickly in the short term. So there's a, a tremendous amount of things that we can do. And of course, if I could just briefly turn to the issues around um, uh, what we're doing with the Energy Platform Task Force, which is aimed in the short term at addressing the issues of getting out of Russian gas. We are looking in three routes. Uh, I have lots of threes today. Firstly, we're looking to aggregate our demand at the European level, um, working through a series of regional uh, groups. We've now launched or are launching today the second of those in Central Europe uh, to look at the specific issues around um, uh, gas and, and diversification from Russian supply for regional groups of countries. Secondly, to improve the efficiency of our use of infrastructure and to look at where we can do short-term fixes for infrastructure as well. And last but not least, we're doing a major reach out to third countries uh, to, to look for ways of increasing access to supplies of gas in the near future. So that's how that's how we're fitting the bill, I hope, on one of those points of the triangle of Repower EU. But the question is, is absolutely right. There's no dichotomy. We are going to play golf with more than one club here. Okay, so it, it, Matthew, as you may have picked up uh, when you when you joined, one of the one of the issues that we've honed in on here is is the very uh, is, is is the looming issue of what happens this winter. You know, there, there's an oil embargo coming to a, into effect later in the year, and there where the, you know there may well be appetite for tighter and even more far-reaching sanctions if we see more atrocities uh, from Putin in, in Ukraine. The question is, you know, and, we, and we've been talking a lot about what the uh, EU institutions can do about this. Uh, can Europe be ready for the challenges it faces this winter? And I would add, you know, that's terribly important to prevent the kind of political backlashes that we've also been talking about that could in effect, breed more extremism and Euroscepticism. I agree with you completely. Um, and to be, to some extent at least, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Um, Europe must be ready for the challenges it faces this winter and beyond, and Europe will be ready. Uh, we have the attention of leaders on this at every European Council. Um, the political challenges for them are great. Um, but I think there is a determination and a hard-headed uh, approach to these issues. And I think we've shown this throughout the crisis, not just in energy. I think the European Union has worked with extraordinary unity 
um, uh, and we will we will address the energy challenges in exactly the same spirit. So once again, Europe can be ready, must be ready, and will be ready. Okay. Now, we just have a few minutes left, but I want to grab another couple of questions from uh, from our. Um, from our audience, uh, one thing that keeps coming up is whether nuclear should be part of the taxonomy and the degree to which it should play a role. Uh, nuclear takes a long time to, to build, but it is pretty clean in uh, terms of uh, carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases. Um, can I, I'm looking around to see who might want to address that. I'd be a lot more excited about the nuclear question if indeed it didn't take so long to build from the point of view of some of the timelines we're looking at on energy security and on decarbonisation pathways. It doesn't seem to me a priority discussion. Okay, okay very good. And uh, we also have a question, and perhaps this is one for, uh, for Kirsten. Uh, the question is about whether the hydrogen partnerships, Kirsten, would not just be in uh, in our neighborhood, in the European uh, neighborhood, but also could reach out to Asia and and uh, you know to to other parts of the world. Right. I mean, definitely yes. That is a question of um, whether we're talking about derivatives and transport vectors, then, then it's clearly a, a task for the European Union also to work on establishing a global market. Looking, I know that it's it's way ahead, but looking into the establishing establishment of a global commodity market. But it's also very much um, an issue of um, partnerships, long-term sustainable partnerships in pipeline distance. So I really see the development of pure hydrogen um, in, in concentric circles around the EU and, and first regional hubs. Okay, great. Now, before we wrap up, maybe maybe okay. I can just come back to you, Matthew, for some thoughts on, sure. on, on that. Yes, thank you. Sorry, I interrupted you. Um, no, I, I very much agree with Kirsten on this. Um, hydrogen is a crucial part of the future, and this is why we've identified in Repower the need to have not just uh, 10 million tons of uh, domestic green hydrogen production by 2030, but we want to look at ways of importing uh, an additional 10 million tons of renewable hydrogen uh, by the same day. So these partnerships will be central, and they'll be central to our work in the in the energy platform task force as well. I mean, you, it's very difficult and it's not very useful to have a conversation with third countries about improving access to LNG without at the same time broadening that conversation to hydrogen, looking uh, again at infrastructure and how that role can be played. And if you look at the formidable investments needed in hydrogen, I mean, we are estimating uh, under Repower an additional eye-watering sum alert, uh, 113 billion euros uh, needed, uh, including a huge part of the cost in, in, in investment in renewable electricity capacity to produce um, uh, renewable hydrogen via electrolyzer. So, I mean, this is a, a major challenge. We're at the bottom of that curve now, and we're very keen to go up it, including by the use of hydrogen partnerships. Super, thank you. Um, Heather, we've got just a couple of minutes left, but you, I'd like to invite you to sort of perhaps uh, respond to some of those final thoughts that we had. Just thinking longer term, um, there are a couple of things where I think we really need to think about integration of policy. So on hydrogen, for example, uh, great um, to have this the, the technology now to replace the molecular needs, uh, particularly in industrial uses where you don't want to put electricity straight in. But ultimately, you have to make the hydrogen with renewables, not fossil fuels, for it to be truly green. Hydrogen doesn't just magically appear. And at the moment, we don't have the renewables capacity to do it. So what Matthew was just saying about the need for investment is really significant, both in Europe and also in the rest of the world. Um, and uh, for example, at the moment, as I understand it, um, Europe itself only has about a third of the renewables capacity that would be needed in order to meet that production target that Matthew just mentioned. So how do we build another two thirds over the next few years? And then there's the rest of the world, because if we would like to, to import that much hydrogen, we've got to build renewables capacity also in other regions so that local people are not seeing um, new hydrogen plants built to export hydrogen to Europe using energy um, which they don't have. 
you know, they're going to need that energy to power their own um, houses and industry and so on, but also they're going to need it to desalinate water to provide for local needs as temperatures go up and water stress becomes more and more acute. Okay, so we need to build this into development and trade policy as well. Brilliant. That's a fantastic uh, global view. So we're looking locally, we're looking globally. Uh, now, we're out of time, and I'd like to say a big thanks to our panelists, both here and uh, virtually, Matthew and Kirsten, thanks so much. And uh, of course, to everyone joining uh, here and online. And as a reminder, you can go to the chat for a link to the first event in this uh, series on why energy sanctions on Russia matter so much for cur curbing the war in Ukraine and how to make those sanctions effective. It just is left to me to wish you all a very pleasant day uh, and thank you again for joining.